We can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 20 this evening, but I will we'll read the entire chapter to set the context. The prophet Joel will begin reading at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beast of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we know that sin brings much devastation and much misery in this fallen world. And we know that when that terrifying day of the Lord has come, it shall be a great day of terror for those who are not in Christ. It shall be a great day of devastation. And we know that there are types of this in the Old Testament. And we're thankful that they teach us something about the seriousness of sin, but also what that punishment does look like. And so we ask and pray, O oh Lord, that you'd help us to be thankful that we have fled the judgment to come in Christ Jesus. 
We ask and pray that you'd help us to be thankful that you've given us the gift of repentance. And we are thankful, O Lord God, that when we do things that we ought not to, even as Christians, even those with remaining corruption, even when there are things where it is our doing, we are thankful that we can cry out to you. We can call upon your name and we're thankful that you help us, that you forgive us, that you wash us in the blood of Christ and we have been washed in the blood of Christ. And so we're thankful that you are the God we can go to when we lament. You're the God that we can go to when we repent. You're the God that we can go to in faith. And we're thankful you're the God that we can go to when we are joyful and bring thanksgiving before you. You are our God and we are your people. And we ask and pray that you'd help us to know this tonight, especially when we are sensitive, especially when we are concerned. We pray that we would come before you knowing that you hear us because you are our Heavenly Father. So we pray that your saints would be encouraged by that this night. We pray that any here today who do not know you, please save them. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we do ask again that you give us your spirit to better understand what is going on in your word, especially uh, with some of these more difficult passages. Thank you that you aid us. Thank you that you help us. And be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, parenting is a most difficult task. That's probably an understatement, but parents must strike a balance between disciplining their children, but also encouraging their children as well. And sometimes as we strike that balance, sometimes that uh, discipline is letting children take their lumps, letting children learn from the natural consequences of their own mistakes. If my little child is walking with her eyes closed, I'm not going to let her walk into the street where there are cars. I'm not going to let her walk off a cliff, but I have no problem letting her bump into walls. I have no problem letting her bump into things uh, so that she learns not to bump into those things. But the hope is, and hopefully a good parent knows, that when the kids cry out in pain, the kids need to know that their mom and dad will be there to help them. Even though it's their own doing, even though their own foolishness, they need to know that they can cry out and mom and dad will be there. And certainly Judah needs to be reminded of that here with what we see in Joel chapter 1. Judah has done a lot of wicked things. Judah has engaged in a lot of sins. Judah has violated the covenant that they had made with God and God made with them. And for all the misery they have brought on themselves, they need not just to lament, that's the main call that we see in chapter 1, but they need to be reminded to whom they can lament. They need to be reminded to whom that they can call upon, because Judah really is in a dire situation. I do think the prophet Joel is pre-exile. I do think it's perhaps post the, the, the taking away of the northern kingdom, so post 722 B.C., uh, there's references to Judah, there's references to the house of the Lord, references to the temple. So I do think it's sometime prior to, perhaps close to, the time when Jerusalem is taken in 586 BC. And so Joel's all about the calamity that is about to come, all about God's righteous judgment and God's uh, uh, bringing upon the covenant curses that we see in the book of Deuteronomy. So there's a lot of warning about that destruction. There's a lot of warning about what, a lot of imagery about what that destruction shall look like. But throughout this book as well, there are calls to repentance. Throughout this book, there is hope uh, for refreshment. Even though the land is going to be desolate, there is the hope that the people of God shall find 
refreshment. Now, some themes that we see, we're going to see the day of the Lord today. That certainly comes up a lot in the prophet Joel. We're going to see restoration, repentance, God's mercy, a lot of serious things, but a lot of blessed things that we see in the prophet Joel. And I do think we can structure it really in two ways, and I follow Raymond Dillard here. We can look at the disasters in chapter 1 to 2.17. We see the immediate disaster of the locusts. We see the impending disaster of the day of the Lord, namely God judging Judah by way of Babylon. Then we see in chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to the end of the book, we see the answers to those things, the answers to both of those disasters. So we have the seriousness, the reality of these coming disasters, but then there's the answer to those disasters that we see later on in this book. And so we're really still dealing with that immediate disaster of the locust plague, still dealing with the immediate disaster of the locust who've devoured everything but we need to see the God who is behind it. And that's what Joel is highlighting for us here in chapter 1. There is this serious problem, namely the day of the Lord. The terrifying day of the Lord. The reason they need to lament is because it's the time of the Lord's visitation. He's going to bring recompense. He's going to bring justice upon the people of Israel for their covenant violations. And it's something that Judah uh, for which Judah needed to lament. They needed to cry out. They needed to see what's gone, gone on. They need to see the disaster that's coming upon them. And the right response is to lament. But the encouraging thing that we need to see is, again, to whom we can lament. And so in Joel 1, verses 13 through 20, the prophet calls the priest to lament to God at the coming of the day of the Lord. They need to cry out for what they have done and cry out for the result of what they've done, but also they can go to the God who is merciful and gracious. There is the terrible sadness sin and misery can bring, but is there a place that God's people can go, even in our sin and misery? And hopefully the answer to that question we'll see tonight is yes. And so we'll look at this lament under two headings this evening. I always like two headings. I'm not really a three-heading kind of guy. I'm kind of a two-heading kind of guy. I've noticed that over the years, but two headings. The summons to lament, verses 13 and 14. The summons to lament in verses 13 and 14. Then we'll see the reason for lament in verses 15 through 20. And this is all structured around this idea of the one to whom we can call upon. So the summons and then the reason. Let's first look at the summons to lament in verses 13 and 14. But it's good to be reminded where we came from, and we saw in verses 1 through 12, the reality of the land laid waste. We see this locust, this covenant curse. We see this starvation curse, uh, this locust curse that comes from them devouring uh, the crops and devouring the plants, and it seems to be relentless. The chewing locust, the swarming locust, the, the crawling locust, the consuming locust. Now, Again, the commentators are divided. Is it literal? Are there literal locusts? That certainly is part of the covenant curse, so that's not necessarily wrong. But also men coming and taking the crop is also part of the covenant curse as well, which is what we see in Deuteronomy 28.38 and Deuteronomy 28.51. And certainly we see in Exodus 20, as sorry, not Exodus 20, Exodus 10, that God had brought these locusts, this curse upon Egypt, now God is going to bring the curse upon Israel because they have violated 
the covenant. And so it is something so surprising. It is something for which the people with hoary hairs in Israel had to recall. Is there something as vile and as not as vile, but as terrifying as this thing that is about to happen? And then we saw some of the responses to that, the drunkards. Uh, we see the farmers. We also saw this reference to the priests in verse 9. And now we have that specific focus upon the priests here, beginning at verse 13. And so in verse 13, we see the summons for the priests, the summons for the religious leaders, what they must do in light of this coming day of the Lord. And so we see they need to gird themselves. There's going to be a long night. It's going to be a long night of wailing, a long night of crying. And so they need to be prepared. Something as serious as this needs a bit of preparation. They need to gird themselves. They need to pick, prepare themselves. Mourning requires this very thing. We don't go looking for mourning, but sometimes when it comes, there needs to be a preparation for it. Gird yourselves, prepare yourselves, and lament, you priests. Prepare yourselves and cry out to the Lord God Most High. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come. Lie all night in sackcloth. The thing with the, the night there, lying all night, highlights that night watch. That highlights the severity of what's about to occur. It's not just crying out during the day, but it's so bad that they need to cry out at night as well. They need to cry out throughout the night because it's so severe. And so whether one is before the altar during the day or whether one is before the altar during the night, they must cry out. They must lament. They must come, lie in sackcloth. They must come and be before him. Rather, we saw this sackcloth imagery in verse 8, uh, this garment for a time of, of seriousness, a time of sorrow. We saw in verse 8 that vivid imagery, uh, one who is supposed to be married, one is supposed to wear the white dress. Uh, she's going to wear sackcloth instead. And so the priests are supposed to wear sackcloth. You who minister to my God, and they shall do it all night. And again, notice where they're doing it, where they're going to be crying out to their God. It's going to be in his house. We see the reason for why they need to cry out. The ultimate reason is in verse 15. But if we follow the flow of verse 13, we see for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. There's not going to be offerings anymore. There's not going to be anything to bring to God as tribute because of the vile things that Israel has done. They're not going to be able to worship God in a right and proper way because they've been so wicked. God is going to remove that very thing. The thing that they have neglected will be taken away. Now, Joel doesn't mention so much about why we got here. We know that from Hosea. Hosea was sin, 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 sin. And then finally we come to Joel and it's all about here's the result of that. Here's the devastation. Here's the misery that sin brings. And so here are the people, here are the priests crying out to God most high. They've been summoned to lament before their God. The offerings are withheld. They are withheld from the house of your God, but nonetheless, they still must cry out in the house of their God as they lament before their God. They must mourn for the land and mourn for the end of Israel as a body politic. And so there's a summons to the priests to cry out to God. But then we also see that summons for the people. 
Remember, it's not just one person in the land of uh, Israel. It is the whole people. If one of them violated it, then they're all liable. I mean, that's a terrifying thing. If one person did it, if one person did something wrong, the whole nation is viable. That's partly what the sacrifices were for, not savingly, but so that the people could approach God, uh, approach God most high, but also they could approach him and seek forgiveness in an external sense for Israel as a nation. But this is an extraordinary circumstance. And that requires an extraordinary response. Fasting is an extraordinary response. It's an extraordinary practice in the life of God's people. And so the people are now called, all the inhabitants, all the elders, they're called by the priests to consecrate a fast and a solemn assembly. Now, again, what's interesting is it is the, the covenant God they've sinned against, but it is to him they must cry out. And it has to do, it starts with this solemn assembly, with this fast. Now, the fast will include the cessation of daily activities or daily routine. I mean, the end is near. I mean, the end is near. They, have to, they don't have to worry so much about their job. It's God is coming. He's going to visit. The end is close. And so this fast uh, isn't just stopping eating. It's probably stopping their work as well. Now, a fast does stop. You know, one stops eating as well, but it's also a special time of prayer. Again, it's an extraordinary religious activity done at times when there is great sorrow of the soul. It is to be done in a time of great seriousness, a time of great sorrow. Perhaps fasting helps heighten uh, a sense of one's appeal to God, especially as we are uh, denying ourselves in that way. So fasting can be done by the people of God individually. I mean, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. He just says, don't tell everybody about it. Don't fast. Don't mention it to everybody. Don't mention all that you're doing. Don't do what I did the day before our wedding day. You know what I did? I fasted the day before our wedding day. The problem was we went out for lunch with everybody. And so then when I was before everybody and I wasn't ordering anything, people have to ask, why aren't you eating, Mike? It's because I'm fasting. Aren't I so wonderful? The day before my wedding, I'm fasting. Isn't that great? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. What do the Pharisees like to do? Look, I'm fasting. Oh, I'm so sad. I'm fasting. We're not supposed to do that. When we're fasting, fasting is a legitimate thing, but people are not supposed to know that we are fasting. But perhaps in a case where there's corporate fasting, then perhaps people can know in that sense because perhaps the idea of laying on of elders, we see this in chapter 22 of our confession, solemn fastings. If it really was the end of the world pretty close, uh, we might call something like that. Uh, but there is a time for it, and especially for Israel as a body politic, as the day of the Lord is about to come. So it's extraordinary. It's meant to be done during weighty situations, weighty Political situations, I mean, we see this with Nehemiah. He calls a fast in Nehemiah 9. Why? Because the people were married to foreigners. That was a big no-no. You weren't supposed to do that. Same, so, same thing with Ezra and Ezra chapter 8. They called fastings because there's a weighty matter that they have to deal with. And the day of the Lord is a weighty matter. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. 
So the people were supposed to be called to come and do this very thing. They're summoned by God to do this very thing. All the inhabitants of the land, uh, all the elders. So the elders here probably aren't our officials here with what we saw in verse three and uh, sorry, verse two. The, it was probably the older people in age. But here it is referring to the officials. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land and know what notice where they go into the house of the Lord. Here is a problem. Here is an issue. Here is the day of the Lord. Here is a solemn fast. You have sinned against this God. He has taken away the grain and drink offering, but you still need to go to his house. You still need to enter into the house of the Lord and notice to cry out to him. You go into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. That is one of the main repeated things in this book. Crying out is so very important in this book. It gives further significance to what we see in Joel 2, which is then quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, where he talks about calling upon the name of the Lord, to cry out to the Lord God most high. And Israel was meant to do that in their time of great seriousness and great sorrow. They were summoned, the priests were summoned to lament, and we see the people of God were summoned to lament as well as this fast and the sacred assembly was called. Now, I think the main thing that we see here is the place where we lament, or perhaps another thing we could say is the place where we repent. See, brethren, where do we go when we need to cry out to God? There are two main places, right? <laughs> you know them, the prayer closet and the house of the Lord. That's where we go. We can go to our God in the prayer closet. Again, repentance is a key theme in this book. Repentance is a change of mind concerning sin. Repentance is sorrow over sin. Now, thankfully, God's people who are redeemed in Christ, we do not have to fear the judgment to come but we still might face serious situations. And if we don't face serious situations, we all still struggle with remaining sin. There might be many reasons to lament we can go to our God in the prayer closet. There might be many sins for which we need to repent and we can go to our God in the prayer closet, knowing that he hears us. I think the Baptist divines were instructive when we see what they say concerning repentance unto life and salvation in chapter 15. They say, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. We are saved, we have that repentance unto life, but sometimes God's people go through sins and serious situations and we might fall into certain sins. And so where can we go? We can repent. I love what paragraph two has to say. Where there is none that doth good and sinneth not. And the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling may be renewed through repentance unto salvation. That is, when you struggle with a sin, dear brethren, go to the prayer closet. When there is a serious situation for which you must lament, go to the prayer closet. And then 
come to church. We go to the prayer closet, and then we go into the house of the Lord. Remaining corruption should not keep us from entering into the house of the Lord. There are sensitive souls out there who think, I'm so unworthy, how could I ever come into the house of the Lord? Brethren, if we thought about that on our own and not in light of Christ Jesus, it's true. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgiveness, in whose blood we are covered, and it is because of him that we can enter into the house of the Lord. It is not based upon our perceived worthiness that allows us to enter, but it is God's amazing grace. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and of great kindness. The place we can go, we do go to him in our prayer closet, and we go to him in the house of the Lord. So summons to lament. That is what the priests must do, and what we see in verses 13 and 14. So let's then turn to the reason for lament in verses 15 through 20. The reason for lament, verses 15 through 20. And this is where we come to that important motif in the prophets called the day of the Lord. Again, it's not the Lord's day. We gather on the Lord's day for rest and worship. The day of the Lord is the day of his visitation in judgment. There are many days of the Lord, and those days of the Lord are types of the final coming day of the Lord. 722, you all know those dates, right? 722 BC, when Assyria takes the northern kingdom day of the Lord. When Babylon in 586 BC takes the southern kingdom, Judah, day of the Lord in AD 70 or yeah, AD 70. We see that when um, Rome comes and they destroy the temple, it is also the day of the Lord. It all points ahead to what? The final day of the Lord when this world is going to be no more. They're all types of God's judgment looking ahead to that final one. It's the day of his visitation. We see it in Amos 5, which we'll eventually get to. We see it in Isaiah 13, which we might never get to. Uh, maybe we'll do Isaiah another time, but uh, possibly, but probably not for a long time. We saw it in Malachi 4. John the Baptist is going to come before that great and terrifying day of the Lord. And we see even in Acts 2, talk, uh, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 with respect to this idea of the coming day of the Lord as well. And what we flee before that day comes. And so we see verse 15, alas for the day. Why are they crying alas for the day? Woe for the day. It is here for the day of the Lord is at hand. The locusts the invaders, the captivity is all from God. It is all from the hand of the Almighty. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. It all comes from him because he is a righteous and just God. He does what he said he would do. And in the terms of that old covenant that God made with Israel, God said, follow me. 
do what I say, and you'll have blessings in the land. And if you don't do what I say, you're going to be cursed. And what do they all say? Yes, Lord, we'll do exactly what you say. Yes, Lord, we, uh, curse be upon us if we don't do what you say. And so what happens? God is faithful to his word. Now, thanks be to God for the new covenant and the covenant of grace in which sinners are saved everlastingly. And that new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, can never be broken because Christ's finished work is sufficient. So if you're in Christ Jesus, you believed upon him and you still struggle with remaining sins, be encouraged that you cannot be out of that covenant because Christ's work is sufficient. That's why I always say, look to Christ, claim to Christ, because he is the one who is sufficient for his people. But old covenant Israel, the old covenant was never meant to save, but for the old covenant people, they did not do what God has said. And so that day has now come. And we see the devastation that it brings, this starvation curse, really, these starvation curses. We see them in Leviticus 26, 26, and Deuteronomy 32, 24. But notice, no food. No more food. Verse 16, is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. There's going to be no food, but there's also going to be no more worship. There's going to be no enjoyment, and there's going to be no more joy. Food makes us joyful, right? We're all excited to enjoy a good meal. I think food is bittersweet because you're excited to eat it, then you eat it, and then it's gone, and then you're kind of sad about that, but we're excited to eat good things. Food is a blessing from God. Ecclesiastes tells us that. But we also see that food is meant to be coupled, especially with the grain offering and the drink offering of bringing it before God Most High with respect to worship. So there's going to be no more food, which gives joy, but there's going to be no more worship, which gives ultimate joy, or at least worship should give us more joy than food, but sometimes uh, our bellies become our idols. But we see this place was meant to be a place of joy and gladness, but now it becomes a house of lament. No food, it's cut off, no joy, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So there's no food, no joy, no more storehouses. If there's no grain, why do you need storehouses? If there's nothing to put in it, why do you have to do the upkeep to make sure that those sheds are working properly? That's what we see in verse 17. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. There's no need for them anymore. No more storehouses. And then the animals are also affected, aren't they? All of creation is affected, by the way, when sin came into this world. That's why Romans 8, the, the creation groans for the redemption. And so we see the animals groan in verse 18. There's no more pasture. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. They have no food either. They have nothing to graze upon. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. They suffer shame. Now, did the sheep sin? Did the cows do, violate God? We violated God's law. Adam violated God's law and brought sin and misery into this fallen present world. And now we see for Israel, their whole land is going to be desolated, so much so 
that everyone is crying out. The animals are crying out. The land is crying out because of the desolation that God shall bring. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So it is a great and terrifying day of the Lord. But even in the midst of the day of the Lord, even in the midst of the day of the Lord for Israel, notice again in verses 19 and 20, the God they can call upon. And again, that's the main lesson. O Lord, verse 19, to you I cry out. The people go into the house of the Lord to cry out to the Lord God Most High. And here we see the prophet himself, Joel, again, one whom we don't know much about other than he's the son of Pethuel. But he cries out, O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. He has to deal with all the devastation. He has to deal with all the, the remnant had to deal with all of that, didn't they? And so where can they go in times of distress? And even in times of destruction, they can go to the house of the Lord. They can call upon him. And even for Israel, all this was of their own doing. And yet God is saying to them, come and cry out to me. Brethren, in the Christian life, again, our sins are forgiven. We are covered in the blood of Christ, but there are still some natural consequences that we that are of our own doing. If you're lazy at your job, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, let him not eat. If you're not going to work hard, then you cannot eat. Spiritual life, I'm not growing. Okay, well, are you using the means of grace? Again, not saying there aren't trials, even when we do use the means of grace, but that's one thing to ask ourselves. Are we using the means of grace? And there are many other circumstances. There are many other situations where we are forgiven before God most high, but we have to deal with the natural consequences in life. But thankfully, where can we go as we deal with those natural consequences in life? We can go to our God. We can cry out to him, seek forgiveness, and seek help in the midst of those situations. Even when the fire has devoured the open pastures, even when the flame has burned all the trees of the field, this uh, devastation, this destructive fire we see and promised in Deuteronomy 32. Remember that's the song of Moses. They had to sing a song to remember it. And I guess they forgot that song as well. But God is the one whom they can go to. The prophet cries out to him, but so do the animals. Verse 20, the beasts of the fields also cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the opened pastures. The beasts cry out. The Lord provides for them. We saw this in Psalm 104. That's why we sang verses 13 through 23. We see in verses 13 through 20, or 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. All those things were taken away, by the way, in Joel 1.10. Then we see the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of, the Leban of Lebanon, which he planted. Where the birds make their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. 
The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. And so verse 20 of Joel 1, the beasts of the fields also cry out to you. In a time of desolation, in a time of dryness, for the wa- an aridness, for the water brooks are dried up, in a time of devastation by fire, the fire has opened the pastures, they cry out to God. Now we know they don't have souls, we know they cannot be saved, we know that very thing, but nonetheless they still cry out to God. And so what's the lesson? If the beasts of the field cry out to God in their distress, the people of God ought to cry out to God in their distress. We ought to cry out to our God in times of distress. That is the application. It's not just where we go, the prayer closet in the house of the Lord, but it's the God that we get to call upon. The God who is our father and we are his children. The God who is our God and we are his people. The God who said he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. There is a comfort here in the midst of all the calamity that is about to happen to Israel. And that comfort is that there is this God that we can call upon who is our God. And if we are his children, we can always call upon him. And thankfully, because of Christ Jesus, we really don't need to fear the day of the Lord. That's what I think Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. The New Testament speaks about the days of the Lord. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5, but you can look at 2 Peter 3 on your own. But 1 Thessalonians 5, the people were freaking out. They were wondering, has Christ come back? Has the day of the Lord happened? And so what is Paul writing to encourage them with? It hasn't happened yet. And so that is an encouraging thing. How do we know it hasn't happened yet? Well, there are still wars and rumors of wars. But we see we're not supposed to know that day. In 1 Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And certainly we're going to, as we see in 2 Peter 3, it's going to be the end of this creation. But we'll stay with 1 Thessalonians 5. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you are also doing. Don't worry about that day, dear brethren. Don't worry about when Christ comes back. Long for when Christ comes back, but we don't have to fear that day because Christ Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve that will be poured out upon that day in himself on Calvary's tree. The end time judgment came forward on that day when all of the sins of God's people were poured out upon the Son of God who hung upon that tree. We have comfort, dear brethren, because of what Christ has done. We have comfort, dear brethren, because we can call upon our God in whatever distressing situation we are in, even when it is of our own doing. That is how gracious our God is. And if you're an unbeliever here tonight, Joel is all about calling upon the name of the Lord. And in Joel 2.32, which is quoted by Peter, he says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Flee the wrath to come by faith in Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And those who fled the wrath to come in Jesus Christ, never stop calling upon your God. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that we never have to stop calling upon you. We're thankful that you're the one who is infinite, you're the one who is almighty, and you're the one who can handle all of our problems. You're the one who can handle all of our issues. You're the one who can help us with all of our problems and all of our issues. Even when those problems and issues are because of the choices and the things that we have done. And we're ultimately thankful, O oh Lord, uh, that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus. That we are washed in the blood of Christ. That all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and the ones that we will commit in the future as well. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are slow to anger. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that this is who you are. And thank you that you reveal these things to us in your word and you reveal these things to each and every one of your people by the power of the spirit in their lives and that they might see their need for Christ and flee to him by faith. Thank you that we have fled the wrath to come. We're thankful that we have fled that in Christ Jesus. Pray for those who do not know you. May they flee the wrath to come in Christ Jesus. May they be gripped by this terrifying picture, this glimpse and foretaste of what that day shall be like. But we ask and pray that you would work in them to show them their sin, but show them the blessedness of Christ Jesus. And thank you that we don't need to worry about that day. We don't, need to, we don't know when that day shall be, but thank you that you encourage us that it shall come like a thief in the night and that we shall be with Christ world without end we shall be singing praises to your name world without end at a place where there is no more sin and sorrow and suffering and so thank you that you are the God we can call upon we pray that we would call upon you each and every day that we would cry out to you when we pray that we would cry out to you when we come and gather as your people so be with us now by your spirit we pray help us as we go out into the world give us the strength that we need in this present fallen world and help us as we are making our way to that celestial city. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.